morning, everyone. Uh, I know you're enjoying the early spring. Beautiful day today. Uh, keep your coat on. The, uh, hey, we've got a very special guest this morning that I want to introduce to you. Most of you know that we have had initiatives in Central Asia as a church, local church, mission initiatives in Central Asia, Kazakhstan, uh, for many, many years. And years ago, we took members of our own congregation, teamed them up, and actually planted them in the middle of Central Asia, Kazakhstan, in a village called Bayerjan Mumshala. And in that village, we began to learn the language, the Kazakh language, make friends, and win people to Jesus. And we saw the church established there. There is a young woman here today with us from Bayerjan Mumshala, now living in Almaty, who works for the United States government now, USAID, and she's here doing some specialized training for that work in Kazakhstan. And she grew up in Bayerjan Mumshala. And she actually, at the age of 11 or 12, began attending our English center that we established in Bayerjan. And Brett Westbrook and other members of our team taught her English. And you're about to hear in just a moment just how well she learned. Faruza's mother was a God seeker truth seeker and a missionary handed her a new testament she ran the, she read the new testament and began to associate with a just a little band four or five people christians in the village the first converts and and Feruza then became a christian as well she is here today we wanted to introduce her to you let her let, let you see another beautiful kazakh face and hear a story that comes out of our experiences there so give Feruza a nice warm welcome this morning Good morning, church. My name is Firuza. I'm from Kazakhstan, but born in Uzbekistan, moved to Kazakhstan when I was six years old. I um, wanted to thank you for this opportunity. I feel very honored to be here to share with you about me a little bit, about my testimony. So 16 years, 16, 70 years ago, 70 years, 17 years ago, um, in our little village in Kazakhstan, we learned about this group of people coming from America organizing English camp for little kids. And everyone, every little kid wanted to be a part of it. And of course, I was interested in it, in it but I wasn't allowed to go because my teacher said, your English is not good enough, so you'll have to learn a little bit more next year, maybe. So next year, I did everything to be there. Um, so I met these people, uh, very different people. I won't lie if I say I've never seen people like that. <laughs> they were smiling, caring, welcoming. I felt like even though they didn't know my name or they knew nothing about me, but I felt like they loved me. And... Uh, I felt something was different. They're very different from me, from people that I know. That was around the time when my mom got retired and uh, she was looking, searching for God. As you probably know, in Soviet Union, there was no God. You don't believe in God. So she, she, wanted, she started reading Quran, going to mosques, and she was not feeling that she needed more. So she met this young man, missionary Kazakh man, um, they talked for hours and hours about faith, about Jesus. So she was interested in it. She started going to this little group we call church, a few people of four or five. And she started going, and she said she really liked it. She every every week she would glow when Sunday came. She said, "I get to go to this group." And she said, "You want to come join me?" So if seeing me from my side, she was a very harsh person. She, was, she never believed in sensitivity and all these little things. And here she is, smiling, caring, and changing. And she would say, Jesus, Jesus teaches us to be like that. So I said, well, there must be something then. So <laughs> I was 12 years old when I went there. And I felt when came to this group, I felt like I was... And a little part, a little bit of heaven. 
People are so different, same people as I met in the camp, smiling, loving. So I kept going, and one day this man said, do you want to accept Jesus as your personal Savior? I said, I want to. So he told, showed me ways I could say this prayer or read it out of the little brochure. So I understood it literally, and I learned it by heart in a couple few weeks. And when the time came, I was sure I knew every single word, so I was ready to say this prayer. And when I said in my own language, Isa Masih, that means Jesus Christ, I felt uh, I had goosebumps, and I felt that now I know it was Holy Spirit. I was shivering, I felt hot, I felt cold, something was going on. And I felt every single of the word I learned and I remember I said a few sentences saying, Jesus, you are the God. Please forgive my sins, and I accept you as my personal Savior. Since then, my life has changed, and I don't know what would happen to me if, I, if Jesus didn't come to my life and save me. That was the time when I was struggling with my sibling, and I had I, thinkings of suicidal and just Jesus know perfectly when to come to me, when to save me from my sin. So, and now I know why I had to go through this all, because now we are ministering to orphans who have gone through this. And when I share about Jesus, when I tell them that Jesus loves them and he wants to save, save them, it's not just words. And I share about my own experience. They, get, they are convinced that what Jesus can do in our lives. So 16, 17 years passed. Now I'm married to a wonderful man. We, I met him at church. We have two kids. Um, my oldest is will be th- four years old, and my son is 18 months old. Um, <laughs> well, that's, that's my daughter when she was little, four months old. Yeah, I just wanted to take this time to thank all of you who played your part in my life, in in my mom's life, that you obeyed God, you prayed for us, you supported the people who came over, Westbrooks, Knauses, Hotmeyers played a big role in my life in following Jesus and learning about him. Thank you very much. Uh, Now, uh, last year, my mom went to be with the Lord. Uh, My relatives don't see it when when I say, well, I will see her. I will see her in in heaven with Jesus. They don't understand that. But they see that I have hope in in me, and that's that's something that triggers them. They don't understand it. But they're afraid to ask me why. But... uh, I hope one day they will ask me why I have this great hope in, in Christ. Thank you so much. Amen. Stay right here, man. Stay right here. Stay right here. Aren't you impressed with her English? I mean, there's a very little accent. It's really impressive. Feruza speaks Uzbek, Kazakh, Russian, English, and some Spanish. A little bit. Other than that, she's not been working in our language. Say a blessing for us in Kazakh. Would you do that? Mm-hmm. Just bless us. Kuktiga tangerimiz, alghsaytaman osu waqtishin, sinyan suranaman osu jirdig otrgan erberadamda jarlkasha. Ularden gumrlirndi wizengjumus istiyeshe. Isn't that fun? That's so great. Thank you so much. Beautiful. Well, thank you for bringing your Bibles with you. We continue in this series we've been on now for a number of weeks called The Grave Robber. We are now on the fifth miracle of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Today we are finding him walking on the water. 
a very unique miracle, which I think we have much to learn from. I'm going to read from John's Gospel, chapter 6. I'm going to begin at verse 16. If you have your Bibles open there, if not, we'll project these words on the screen for you. And as is our custom, I'll invite you to stand as you're able to hear God's Word. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. May God inspire us today through this powerful story. You may be seated. Hey, 2,000 years ago, predicting the weather was a real crap crapshoot. <laughs> boys got out in the middle of the lake and the storm hit them. There's a well-worn aphorism that we use from time to time trying to predict the weather. You've maybe heard this one, red skies in the morning, sailors take warning. Red skies at night, sailors delight. We use those little quips to try to predict the weather. But as it turns out, we really can't do much about it, only to react to it. And even with all of our computer and radar and satellite technology were still only bad about 50-50 with the weather prediction. So it is a, it's a challenge. But we know that Jesus was on display often around the Sea of Galilee. We, we know, for example, that there was a miraculous catch of fish on one occasion. There was also his stilling of the storm, peace be still. And he calmed the waves, which was very impressive to the boys in the boat. <laughs> And now we find this amazing miracle where he takes these white caps, these white waves, and turns them into a red carpet. And he's walking across the Sea of Galilee. Now, this wasn't five or six steps and jump in the boat. You understand the story is he sends them toward Capernaum on the other side. The Sea of Galilee is about seven and a half miles across. It's about 17 miles long. And so they're about halfway, three or four miles across in the middle of the night. The waves are blowing and Jesus comes walking to them, which means that Jesus had been walking on the water for about three and a half miles. If, uh, if you calculate a three mile per hour average, which is, which is clipping right along, a fast, brisk walk, he's been walking on the water for over an hour, around 70 minutes or so. So this is a, a phenomenon uh, that has taken place. Uh, just FYI, uh, you may be curious, the density of water is one gram per cubic centimeter at four degrees Celsius. Let me tell you what that means. That means if a human steps on it, they will sink. (laughs) They just go right through. You can't stand on water. It just won't support us. Uh, So for humans, it's not possible to walk or stand or run on water, although there, there is a reptile in nature that can run on water. And interestingly enough, it's called the Jesus lizard. Maybe you've seen it. I want you to look at it. Check it out. How cool is that guy? (laughs) Walk on water. Amazing. If humans could run on water, we would have to achieve a speed of 67 miles an hour which of course is impossible. It would require about 15 times the amount of energy that a human body can produce. The fastest recorded human in history is Olympic champion Usain Bolt, who has been clocked at 27.79 miles an hour. That's about as fast as a human can go. Uh, now, I've been around the lake uh, over the years, and I've, I've actually seen some boys skipping on the water about 60 miles an hour, but I've never seen any of them running on the water. And so it's just not possible. Uh, I told this story not long ago about our youngest son, Isaac, who when he was about six or seven, we were at the lake and there had been a big rain event and the, the water in the lake had risen and actually rose over one of our smaller piers. And this pier was about 15 feet long and a couple of feet wide and the water literally was just over the top of the pier, maybe a half an inch. And Isaac went down there and he thought this was fascinating. Of course, at the shoreline, you could see the pier very clearly just under the surface of the water. But from up at the house, the reflective quality of the water, you couldn't see the pier at all. And so Isaac was down there walking back and forth. 
And for, the, and for everything, it looked like he was walking, dancing, skipping on the water. And it was really fascinating. Our neighbor Dave was watching this whole episode. Isaac, after a while of this behavior, came walking up the hill, walked straight up to our neighbor Dave and said, You know, Dave, very sincere, six years old, he said, You know, Dave, if you have enough faith, you can walk on water. <laughs> and Dave, Dave smiled at him and said, yeah, but it also helps to know where the pier is. <laughs> now, now, it's true. As humans, we have a natural tendency to explain what we can't explain. I mean, if we don't have any context for something, no experience for something, we've never seen that before. That's why we develop this, another aphorism, which says, I'll believe it if I see it. Maybe you've heard that. Maybe you've said that before. I'll believe it if I see it. But there's another there's another part of that that's equally as true, perhaps more true than if I see it, I'll believe it. And that is, if I believe it, I'll see it. If I believe it, I'll see it. Some of you are familiar with the TED Talks, the TED Lectures, TED stands for Technology Entertainment Design. It's a global set of conferences run by the private nonprofit Sapling Foundation under the slogan, Ideas Worth Spreading. Speakers are given a maximum of 18 minutes to present their ideas in the most innovative and engaging way. So you have politicians and philosophers and, and scientists who give these TED Talks, and they're really interesting, just really quite interesting. You can go online and listen to them. There are over 1,900 of them that have been produced now. On one such occasion, a guy named Al Seckel, an authority on visual perception and sensory illusion, gave his TED Talk. And he, in the middle of this talk, he illustrated the point by reporting that he showed an image, a picture to both adults and children over the years, and that they see different things. And he shows the same image to adults and children, and they will see different things because, he said, they don't have a prior memory to associate with the picture. In other words, they have no cognitive category for what they're seeing. They've never, they've never noticed that before. So for adults, when they see this image, they say, this is a man and a woman in a romantic embrace. And for all of the children... They say it's nine dolphins. And it's because they had no cognitive category for what they were seeing. And in this case, with the disciples watching Jesus walk across the sea toward them, they thought he was a ghost. Because, as you know, human beings can't walk on water. They sink right in. But in this case, Jesus is walking on the water, and so because they have no prior uh, experience with this, their brain can't get around it, can't comprehend what's happening. There's no category for it. So they assume, well, this is a ghost because it can't be a man because that's not possible for a man. Never seen that before, so it must be a ghost. So they were about to miss the miracle. What the eye sees is actually determined then by what the brain has learned. This is a very interesting concept. So here's what I want to do today. Is I, I want to just remind you that even though you've never personally seen a very dramatic, with your own eyes, dramatic miracle, I want to I offer this suggestion to you. And this is the first point on your outline. It's simply this. Embrace the mystery. Embrace the mystery. The word you need there is mystery. So the question is, how do you react to the unprecedented? Something you've never seen before. Something you've never heard before. That's a new experience for you. What do you do when God does something that defies your experience of reality. How do you react to that? Well, some people react by ignoring the miraculous. You know, you cover your eyes like a child, you know, plug your ears, blah, 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 blah. I did not hear that. I did not see that. I just ignore it. I pretend like it didn't happen. The last couple of weeks, I've been telling some stories about experiences I've had with God's miracles, and I described the healing of a little girl about six years old who was profoundly crippled, and within about 10 minutes or so, she was walking. I mean, I saw that with my own eyes, and and there, there have been many people who say, you know, thank you for sharing that miracle that you saw that encouraged my faith. There have been others of you who have been pushing back saying, you know, I wonder about that. Are you sure you saw what you saw? People saying to me, you know, generally I, I, I'm inclined to trust you and believe what you say. You seem to be an honest person. But they question my veracity at that point. Are you sure that's what you saw? Maybe it's been so long you just, you know, have exaggerated what you saw. And so people just pushing back because it's unprecedented for them. They've never seen anything like that, and so they have no category for that. 
And so what happens is they can ignore the miraculous. Another reaction to it is to simply excise the miracles out of the realm of possibility. This is what Thomas Jefferson did, one of our founding fathers, architect of the Constitution. Thomas Jefferson actually edited a Bible. There's a Thomas Jefferson Bible available in the day. And what Tom Jefferson did was he went through the Bible and edited out all of the supernatural events. All of the miracles of the Bible, he just simply excised out, cut them out. And, and you're left with a Bible with none of the supernatural because he couldn't get his mind around it. His concept of reality did not permit supernatural things. If he didn't see it, taste it, hear it, touch it, feel it, it's not real. So excise it out. Another thing that people do is they intellectualize the miracles and that is a popular thing to do in, in these days in postmodern world. This is especially true in the academic world right now and even in theological schools and seminaries, graduate schools that teach theology, teach God stuff. They have a tendency to intellectualize the supernatural things of God, just can't get their minds around it. Uh, for example, kind of the ultimate extreme of this is uh, a group of, of scholars who have gotten together, uh, 90 of them. This happened some few decades ago, and they went through every miracle in the New Testament and just asked the question, do you believe this really happened? And they would either put a white marble or a black marble in the bag <laughs> around that particular story, and then at the end of the day, what they'd do is they'd count the marbles. Did Jesus turn water into wine? Uh, no. Because there were more black marbles than white marbles in the bag, so these scholars decided no. And they worked their way through all the miracles of the New Testament, poo-pooing, dismissing, intellectualizing, rationalizing all of them away. Well, this pro it probably didn't happen quite like that. You know, that's not possible. You can't be completely lame or completely blind and then get, see. No, that didn't happen. All the way to the resurrection. There are, there are many uh, really smart people, scholars, you know. They, these are intellectual people, PhDs in God, who will say, well, Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. One of the theories that's popular today is the swoon theory. Maybe you've heard about it. The swoon theory is a group of scholars got together and said, okay, what could have happened that would, that would emanate in this kind of story of Jesus rising from the dead? And most scholars just say, well, it was a spiritual resurrection. You know, it wasn't physical, literal. It was just a spiritual thing. So we can all experience a spiritual resurrection someday. Okay, that's great. And so the swoon theory says that Jesus wasn't really dead. They thought he was dead. He was close to dead. They were pretty sure he was dead, but he wasn't really dead. So they took him off the cross prematurely. He wasn't quite dead. Of course, these Roman soldiers, they wouldn't have a clue about whether someone was dead or not. But they took him off the cross prematurely, and then they wrapped him up and put him in a tomb. And in the cool dampness of the tomb over three days, he actually started feeling better. And then <laughs> got up. So he didn't really die, he just swooned. It's a swoon theory. And, of course, this can make you sound really silly, if not foolish. And so here's my recommendation. My advice is don't try to explain it and don't try to explain it away. Simply embrace the mystery of the miraculous. Embrace that. The miracles of God make us appreciate the mystery of God. God is more than a subject to be learned. Okay, I'm going to school now. I'm going to study systematic theology. I'm going to systemize God. I had to do systematic theology, just like anyone who goes to the grad school to, to learn the God stuff. Systematic theology, which is the biggest oxymoron that's ever been suggested. Like somehow I'm going to understand God. I'm going to systemize God and put God in all these boxes, categories for God. Now I understand God. Really? God defies definition. God will not submit to a human attempt to create God in our own image. Are you listening to this? God is bigger than your ability to comprehend him. He's big, bigger than that. And so here's the danger. The danger is that we somehow put God in a box that we can actually understand and comprehend. And so we limit God and his ability and his activities to what we can comprehend. And it's kind of silly, isn't it? And it's really silly when we, when we think about it that way. God's got to be bigger than me and bigger than my mind and bigger than my imagination. And so and embrace the mystery. Faith is actually just putting God between you and your circumstances. Because your circumstances may say, not going to get out of this one. You're stuck now. 
You can, you can see the end from here. But faith is putting God between you in those circumstances. That's what faith does. It's not denying reality. It's recognizing that there is a reality that is far more real than we can perceive with our five senses. So faith then, in a, in a sense, becomes a sixth sense that enables us to perceive the impossible. Is it possible today, friends, that there is, a, that there is ultimate reality that is something that we cannot perceive with our five senses? Is it possible that there is a spiritual reality that exists that we simply can't hear and see right now? I, have, I actually believe that. I mean, this room could be filled with the most uh, prolific angelic choir right now singing a song that you've ever experienced in your life. You just can't see them or hear them. Can you hear it? And so, and. And here's, here's what we know. This is what I've learned about God. That in my flesh, while I'm still living in my earth suit, I can't penetrate the spiritual realm. I can't just pull back the veil and stick my head in and go, oh, this is what the spiritual world looks like. Wow, this is something. I can't do that because I have limitations of my earth suit. But here's a truth. That the spiritual world can penetrate my flesh. Flesh can't penetrate spirit, but spirit can penetrate flesh. So that a young woman like Feruza can be in Bayerjan Mumshala, Central Asia, uh, 16 years ago, and and realize that she wants to be a follower of Jesus, and she says, she's memorized the prayer. She wants to get it right. She wants to do this properly, and so she pauses in this moment to invite Jesus into her life. She says, "Lord Jesus, come into my life," and she forgets the rest of the prayer. But now she has an experience. She just described it as, "I felt goosebumps. I felt warmth. I felt." Something happening inside of me. Well, that's a spiritual reality. That's, that's just a physical manifestation of a spiritual impact. You know, the Bible says that you are the temples of the Holy Spirit. You invite Jesus into your life, and now suddenly in your earth suit, you're actually carrying around a spiritual reality, the presence and life of Jesus Christ. Jesus said it this way. He said, you have this treasure in earthen vessels. Now, let me just clue you on what I believe. I believe that the spiritual realm is a whole lot more real than the physical realm. I believe there's a whole lot more unseen than there is seen. I think there's a whole lot more energy and power and significance and substance in the unseen world than there is the seen world. That's why I believe in heaven. I believe in heaven. I believe it's a real place. I believe real people go there. I believe in a place called hell. I believe there's divine retribution. I believe believe there's a place like that reserved for the devil. Finally get him off our back. Oh, yeah, I believe he's true. You know, in the seminary, they'll teach you that the devil isn't real. That's just a myth, you know. It comes from mythology and history or whatever. There's no real devil. I mean, come on. Listen, pastor a church for about six weeks, you'll believe in the devil. You may come out of seminary a doubter, but you'll be a believer pretty soon. (laughs) Yeah, you laugh. (laughs) I'm just telling you what I believe. So embrace the mystery. Remember the opening narrative of the original Star Trek TV series? The original Star Trek. The only one that matters. This is for, this is for you mature people in the room. Not all these, you know, these Trekkies now that are all into this modern stuff. No, no. The original Star Trek. Remember the, the, opening, the opening narrative for that series? Space. The final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. It's five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations. Everyone join me now to boldly go where no has gone before. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> Deal with it. But it reminds me of John 3, doesn't it? This is Jesus saying, you know, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it's going. There is mystery involved in the spiritual world. So it is with everyone, he said, born of the Spirit. It's a mysterious thing. Because your five senses miss it, can miss it. You know, just like the wind, you're not sure. It's source or it's destination. Same with the Spirit. It's happening. So embrace the mystery. Second, live without fear. Live without fear. A strong wind was blowing. The waters grew rough. Jesus comes walking to them on the water. They were afraid. He said, do not fear. It's I. Don't be afraid. All of you have heard the name Walinda. 
Carl Walinda was the patriarch of this high-risk, high-rise tightrope family, the Walindas. Uh, Carl, at 73 years old, actually lost his life <laughs> tightroping uh, between high-rise hotels in Puerto Rico. He has a great-grandson named Nick. Nick Walinda is the latest iteration of these, uh, these high-risk, high-wire high, high daredevils. And some of you actually watched Nick recently. He's, he holds many uh, Guinness World Records for his high-wire high act. He actually walked across the Grand Tank Canyon on a two-inch wire with 30-mile-an-hour crosswinds. This was in 2013, June of 2013. It was live on TV. Lots of you sat there for 45 minutes watching every step he took because there's something wrong with you. But, <laughs> but you watched it anyway. <laughs> I, I just told Beth, I don't need to watch that. He's either going to make it or not. <laughs> either way, I can imagine both scenarios without watching it. <laughs> It was Nick's grandfather who impressed upon him at an early age, watch this, that safety nets give a false sense of security. So you ask Nick, well, Linda, why don't you use a safety net? No, no, that ruins the psychology of it. It's a false sense. And so therein lies one of the secrets to experiencing a miracle. Watch this. Here it is. It's this simple. Listen, it's very easy. If you want to walk on water, you've got to get out of the boat. Got to leave the safety. Got to leave the comfortable. Got to leave the routine. You've got to get out of the boat. Now, God may never call any of us out of a literal boat on a literal sea to walk on the water. That may not be the point. But God calls all of us at some point or another in our lives, get out of the boat. Get out. <laughs> Let me put this on the screen for you. There comes a moment when you need to quit preparing for the life you want to live and start living it. In order to do that, you have to get out of the boat. Fearlessness. See, this is one of the most overlooked and unappreciated characteristics of Jesus himself. We have, we have so modified the image of Jesus over time. It's just not right. But Jesus went into the temple one day because there were money changers in there. And he knew that his father's house should be a house of prayer. And Jesus was irate and he's overturning tables and he's taking a whip and just whipping people out of there. And there were guards posted in that, in that area and they were all shocked too. I mean, this was shock and awe. Took enormous courage for him to deal with that. There was a man who lived among the tombs in the Gerasenes. You remember this man. He was nicknamed Legion. Not a, not a, a subtle reference to the number of soldiers in a in the, in the Roman army, a legion of soldiers would be like 6,000 men. And so they called him legion because he was so full of evil spirits and demonic spirits. He had supernatural strength. They actually chained him to the tombs. He lived in a cemetery. He was, he was wild, wild-eyed, out of his mind, out of control, completely out of touch with reality. He was crazy. I can, you know, can only imagine how he stayed alive. I mean, so it took many men to subdue him and chain him up. And then they just leave him there. I can imagine someone just standing outside of the chain perimeter and kind of throwing buckets of scrap on the ground just to keep him alive. Horrible. The darkness and the hellishness of that kind of existence completely disconnected from reality. And one day Jesus shows up at the garrisons with the disciples and this maniac, the devil in him, sees Jesus and he wants a piece of these guys. And so he breaks the chain that's holding him one more time and he comes racing up the hill right towards these guys. Now, if you're one of the disciples, can you imagine this guy? He's out of his mind. Can you imagine the sounds, the, the, his appearance? He's yelling, maybe cursing, moaning, foaming. It's, a, it's, a, it's horror. He comes racing up there in a menacing, threatening, terrorizing way. If you're one of the disciples standing there with Jesus, what are you going to do? Maybe there's at least this much temptation. <laughs> Dang, dude, here he comes. <laughs> He's coming up the hill. Everybody in the region's afraid of him. They don't know what to do with him. Let me tell you what Jesus does. He doesn't even flinch. 
doesn't even bat an eye. And this demonized man, thousands, hundreds, thousands of demons in this guy, comes racing up and just stops. You can almost see him stopping right, right in Jesus' face in a threatening way. Then what ensues is a completely unfair fight. Jesus says, you boys are going to have to get out of him. And he casts all these devils, all these demons, out of this man into a herd of swine who then run into the lake and drown themselves. I mean, it's very dramatic. It made headlines the next day. It was front page the next day. <laughs> and returns this man to his right mind. He's, he's normal again. He's well. Listen, you don't, you don't do that kind of ministry if you don't have courage. Jesus on display. Remember, we said recently, if you fear God, you have nothing else to fear. Right? If you fear God more than you fear anything else, then you have nothing else to fear. Look, there are only two fears we're born with. One is the fear of falling, and the other is the fear of loud noises. Every other fear that we develop is learned, which means it can be unlearned. Now, here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that perfect love casts out all fear. So the more in love with God you become, the less you will fear other things. You'll fear, the less you'll fear the, the opinion of others, or you'll, you'll fear failure. Or, or you'll, you'll, you'll fear the future. All of that goes away when you begin to love God and fear Him only. Let me, let me th- tell you what I think are the two seminal evidences of a person who is filled with the love of God. One is that person is sensitive to the voice of God and sensitive to the needs of others. This is a person who's filled with the love of God. They can hear God's voice and they, they're aware of the pain and the suffering of people around them. And they have a heart for that. Their heart breaks for the things that break God's heart. And so they're filled with God's love. Here's a second evidence, I think, a seminal evidence of a person who is filled with the love of God. And this is a person who has a strong spine. Let me explain. I think a person who is filled with the love of God knows how to stand straight and knows how to stand strong for what is right. This is, the, this is a characteristic of authentic love. Now listen, that's really hard because listen, we live in a culture where it's wrong to say something is wrong. It's wrong to say something is wrong. And not only is that wrong, but it takes an even tougher person to do what's right. A person who is full of the love of God will not only be sensitive to the pain and needs of people around them, but they will also know what right and wrong is and they'll take a strong stand. They have a spine in a loving representation of God himself. Hmm. That's why moral courage is the rarest kind of courage in our culture. Are you listening? It takes a truly courageous person to do what's right. So I'll just remind you that the will of God for your life, it's not an insurance plan to keep you safe and sound. It's a daring plan. Let me put this on the screen for you. Jesus didn't suffer a brutal death on the cross just to keep us safe and sound. He died to make us dangerous. Died to make us dangerous. Here's the the words of Dorothy Sayers, an author from just another generation ago. She said, the people who crucified Jesus never, to do them justice, never accused him of being a bore. On the contrary, they thought him too dynamic to be safe. I love this. She said, it has been left for later generations to muffle up that shattering personality and to surround him with an atmosphere of tedium. Listen to this last statement. We have very efficiently paired the claws of the line of Judah, certified him, quote, meek and mild, and recommended him as a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious old ladies. Now listen, if Sayer's generation declawed the line of Judah, we have neutered him or lobotomized his wild side and we wonder why we're bored with our faith. We wonder why the church doesn't appeal to men in our culture anymore. We wonder. We've given people just enough Jesus to be bored. Just enough of Jesus to think that he's lowly Jesus, meek and mild. Always soft-spoken, never, never offensive to anybody, never challenging anybody's lifestyle, never calling something right, right, and never calling something wrong, wrong, because that wouldn't be like Jesus. And we wonder, 
We give people just enough Jesus in our church and our culture for people not to really care about him. Not enough to have their vision of the world, their worldview transfixed and their hearts actually transformed. But this Jesus is a courageous savior and he wants to give you his love that makes you sensitive to the people around you and willing to stand for what is right no matter what culture says. Leads me to the last point, and that is simply this. Could I challenge you today to step out in faith? Step out in faith. Everyone in this room has used an Otis elevator, escalator, or people mover. (laughs) Otis. When I say Otis elevators, can you see Otis now imprinted on the plaques inside the elevator? Can you see, can you read that? Maybe it said it said that Elisha Otis's elevators, escalators, and 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 walk along people movers accommodates every the, the equivalent of every human being on the planet Earth, six and a half billion people every three days. Six and a half billion people use an Otis people mover of some sort every three days in our world. That's like a corner of the market. Otis has done all right. Let me tell you about Elisha Otis. He did not invent the elevator, but he did devise the braking system that ensured its safety. In 1854, he couldn't get anybody to buy an elevator. This is the reason that skyscrapers developed. I mean, think about it. If you couldn't safely move people up and down these tall buildings then there's, there's no reason to build them. And so until people felt safe getting on an elevator that could go 100 stories, 100 floors up and down safely, then you couldn't get people to ride them. And in people's minds, they think, well, the only way to get a, a box full of people up that high is on a cable. And what if the cable breaks? If the cable breaks, we're going to die because we're going to fall. Elisha Otis devised a braking system for elevators. And in 1854, at the Crystal Palace Exhibition, standing atop a platform governed by his newly installed braking system, Otis ordered an axe man to cut the cable. (laughs) And in front of hundreds of witnesses, the axe man cut the cable. Everyone goes, whoo! And Otis fell (laughs) for just a few feet and then slowly came to a, a nice, safe stop. Not only did Elisha Otis create the modern elevator, but his sales skyrocketed, and the, and the rest is history because of his daring stunt. Now listen, I also learned that there's a manufacturer of a brand of body armor, and the uniqueness of this body armor is that it weighs less than one pound per square inch. So police officers and military personnel and others who would put on this body armor for safety and the lightness of it and, and the effectiveness of it, you know, it's marketable. And so this company builds this thing. Guess how they sell them? The sales rep zips one on and then has somebody else shoot him. How many of you know? (laughs) We can admit, at least, when that works, that's all good. I mean, really, I'll take 10 of those. That's impressive. And that's exactly what's happened. Listen, faith is pulling the trigger, believing your body armor will stop the bullet. Faith is cutting the cable, believing the braking system will stop your fall. Faith is getting out of a boat and then believing the water will hold your weight. Matthew's account of this miracle includes Peter walking on the water. Remember, Jesus said to Peter, Peter said, if that's really you, invite me out. Jesus said, come on out. Peter got out of the boat. He got out of the boat and he walked toward Jesus. Now, you know, we take shots at Peter because, you know, he started to sink after a few steps. Jesus rescued him. But the point is, boy, he got out of the boat. He should get credit for that. That's amazing. Here's a point I want you to get. I'll put it on the screen. When Jesus summons you out of the boat, then he, you can be sure of his providential care. When he calls you out, you can be sure of that. Love this story. Love, love, love. This is in Batterson's book. Uh, the grave robber. It, it illustrates this point through our first president, George Washington. Love this story. And on his first inaugural address, April 30, 1789, 
This is what he said as he paid homage to God's providence in his life and the life of the nation. And I quote our father George. No people can be bound to acknowledge and adore the invisible hand which conducts the affairs of men more than those of the United States. Every step by which they have advanced to the character of an independent nation seems to have been distinguished by some token of providential agency. In other words, George said, look, every step of the way, we've seen the hand of God, the providence of God, the provision of God, the protection of God. We've seen his hand at work. And this gives us courage. Now, these words were not spoken in a vacuum. George Washington had personal meaning, poignant personal meaning. As president, as he stood there in New York on that first inaugural, he reminisced perhaps of 44 years earlier when he was a 23-year-old colonel in the British Army and fighting in July of 1755, the Battle of Monongahela. This was a massacre of Indian forces and French forces against this British force of 1,300 people. And that day, 23-year-old colonel... George Washington had two horses shot out from under him and four musket balls passed through his coat. A Native American named Red Hawk later testified of having shot at Washington no less than 11 times. He was convinced that Washington was bulletproof. Now, before you go, well, that, you know, that can happen. It's coincidence. You know, you just got lucky or whatever. Of the 1,300 British soldiers, only 30 survived. 30 out of 1,300. And every other officer on horse that day besides George Washington was killed. In a letter to his brother, Washington wrote, Death was leveling my companions on every side of me, but by the all-powerful dispensations of providence, I have been protected. Years later, after Washington was in his retirement years, he, uh, he wrote about this. So it's, it's a documented fact that in all of the years that Washington was in battles and in wars and in skirmishes from the time he was a young man as a British officer all the way through the Revolutionary War where he was oftentimes in harm's way, George Washington in all of those years never suffered a scratch. <laughs> and you know, you know that they were pointing him out. When Jesus summons you out of the boat, then you can be sure of his providential care. There it is. Miracles are simply peepholes into God's care for us. Listen, it could be, friends, that in some way in your life, some matter of your life, God's calling you out of the boat. You know, it's, it's the darkest hour, the fourth watch. It's dark just before the dawn. The waves are crashing in. Maybe you're suffering the crashing waves in your life right now. Maybe you're battling cancer. Maybe you're fighting for your marriage. Maybe you're in a financial crisis and it just feels like the waves are overwhelming you. You have this, this sinking feeling that it's never going to work out, never going to make it, never going to survive it. Well, let me remind you that the miracle of walking on the water was performed by Jesus not because he wanted to show off. This, you know, this wasn't a parlor trick. This wasn't a Vegas act. This wasn't sleight of hand. This was Jesus walking out to his compatriots who were kind of at the end of their rope. They're, at the, they're in the waves, and they're out there because their captain told them to go. So they're out in the middle of the lake in a storm, and at the end of their rope, at the end of their strength, at the end of their way, they're, they're at the end of themselves when Jesus comes walking. See, these miracles are just peepholes into the, into the character of God and His willingness to be with you. Farouz is here this morning, and really you can say, well, that girl, that girl's a miracle. Her family's a miracle. You know, she, we, we can tell lots of miracles. We could spend the rest of the afternoon here today just talking about the miracles that God has performed through our initiatives in Kazakhstan over the years. And the only reason that we can have those miracles to talk about and have them on display today is because we were willing to get out of the boat. Jesus said, get out of the boat. You've got to get out of your comfort zone. You've got to out of, it, out of your complacency. You've got to get out of that stagnancy, that paralysis that you experience. You've got to get out. If you want to see the miracle provision of God, you've got to get out of the boat. And that's the call of God to us today. 
And that first step is usually a difficult step because it means that you've got to go sign up for that class or you've got you've to you've make a down payment for that mission trip or you've got you've to decide that you're going to live and give and act and react in a way that honors God and fulfills His call for your life and you're not going to play it safe anymore. And here's something that I've learned, that when you're, when you're a person who prefers the comfort of the boat, you're the, always the first to complain about people willing to get out of the boat. So people like me, who spend most of our lives out of the boat, it's interesting how many critics line up. The only reason people are critical is because they won't get out of the boat. And I've discovered that the more time you spend out of the boat, the more mistakes you make. But the more mistakes you make, guess what? The more forgiving you become. And the more like Jesus you become. Because people who want to get out of the boat would rather make mistakes than miss the opportunities. See, we'd rather sink than sit. I have, this, I have this old adage that I use from time to time. You know, if you're in the boat and you're busy rowing the boat, then you won't have time to rock the boat. <laughs> and if you're out of the boat, you won't have time to look back and criticize people in the boat. <laughs> so can I nudge you? Because Jesus won't push you out of the boat. He'll just call you. He says, come on. Come on, come on, out of the boat, come on. Put your faith, embrace the mysterious, embrace it. Live without fear, step out in faith, and God will meet you. If you dare to step out, don't be surprised if miracles follow right after. Don't be surprised. So he who has an ear, let him hear what God may be saying today to you and your life. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word which lamps our feet and lights our way. We want to embrace the mystery. God, we confess today that you have to be bigger than our imagination, bigger than our comprehension. And so God, be God. Be God in our lives. Expand our faith so that we would live without fear. Lord, thank you that perfect love casts out all fear. I pray for the person afraid today that you would fill them with your love, that they, they would be more sensitive to you and others and more aware of the strength that comes when they don't fear. So help us, Lord. And, and then finally, you may be calling some of us. Indeed, you, you, you are for sure calling many of us to step out in faith, to trust you, to believe you, to put, to put you, God, between our circumstances and our need. Help us, Lord, to walk by faith. And in all these ways, Jesus, we thank you for modeling so beautifully your miraculous care, your providential care. Thank you, God, that you never call us to places that you won't won't be with us. So thank you for your closeness, we pray. In Jesus' name, all the people said. Now, would you stand as we sing?